I'm Daniel Bass, manager of the South Asia program at Cornell University. And I'm Shravin Senevaratna, graduate student in architecture at Cornell and student worker at South Asia program. You're listening to the Next Monsoon podcast, where we examine how art and culture can help us navigate the uncertain future. This podcast is part of a bigger project in the South Asia program at Cornell University. We'll be interviewing scholars from around the world to help us understand how people and artists face climate change. In this episode, we look at how historiographies of art, anthropology, and feminist theory can help us develop a new understanding on climate change and its crisis. Sanal Kular is a scholar on South Asian art. She is the W. Norman Brown Associate Professor of South Asian Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research and teaching stems from global histories and feminist theory to anthropology of art and postcolonial studies. Her first book is titled Worldly Affiliations, Artistic Practice, National Identity, and Modernism in India, 1930-1990. Welcome, Sanal. It's great to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Daniel Chavin. I want to start with actually a personal question. What are your first thoughts when you hear the word monsoon? Oh, um, I think of peacocks dancing in the rain. Um, That is one of my uh, happiest memories of growing up in Delhi. And uh, it's something that I look forward to um, seeing when I'm in South Asia. I have glimpsed them. Um, in the last five or 10 years, uh, even in the megacity that Delhi has become. Uh, But I will also say that um, flooding, uh, monsoon floods in Kolkata, in Mumbai, are among my most vivid memories uh, of uh, being a graduate student, doing dissertation research in those cities, and uh, having to navigate a world that was very different than the semi-arid Um, conditions of Delhi, where I grew up um, in part, uh, but also then what those cities are like at non-monsoon times. Yeah, that's an amazing encapsulation of the beauty and the problems of the monsoon. You got the peacocks and the floods, both sides together. Absolutely. And I think that that um, dual edge or double dimension of the monsoon is something that we have hoped to capture with this project and that you actually um, raised beautifully by describing uh, the work we're doing about uh, as being about art and culture um, uh, in an uncertain future. How do you think about this cultural lens in terms of how does it inform a different understanding than tackling climate change with a scientific lens? That's a great question, Shavin. I will tell you that uh, I had not thought of my own work uh, as being at any time um, about climate change. Uh, But my recent projects have brought me through the work of artists and activists much closer to conflicts about land, uh, different understandings of ecology and environment. Um, And that's how really I came um, to this project. I do think that uh, a lot of discourse on climate change, which is why I had not thought of my own work as engaging it, tends to be scientific. But that's Mm -hmm. not true anymore. But I think that's certainly how a lot of that uh, work began. Um, And it um, tends to be universalizing. That too is changing, of course, but that the effects of climate change Uh, and its remedies can somehow be globally determined rather than thinking about the problem from 
uh, a local or regional perspective, which is, I think, one of the things that we're hoping to do with this project, um, and that interests me uh, deeply. I'm very in interested in historical and cultural understandings of ecology, of environment, of nature, of land, of water, of the monsoons. So building on that, how does your background and training as an art historian provide a different lens on climate change than what you usually get from social sciences? In some ways, we engage in a dialogue, at least contemporary art historians, with artists, with activists, with curators on a changing earth, and that ideally they come with deep and wide knowledge about artistic practices. So not only artistic practices in South Asia, but artistic practices, say, elsewhere in the global south or in the global north or um, a long durée uh, of artistic practice around land, earth, and environment. Let's say canonical art history from Anna Mendieta to Richard Long, who are often understood as having engaged earth, environment, nature, land in their art of the 60s and 70s. And what I think art historians have to offer is a way of comparing the practices that we have seen in the past to what we're seeing now as cultural responses. Could you name a few of those South Asian artists who express climate change through their art? Sure. Uh, there is a project that I went to visit in 2016 that's a collaborative project at the time being led by two artists, Shweta Bhattar and Lalit Vikamshi, called the Gram Dhara Chitra Utsav, advertised itself as India's first land art festival. And that is a project that was sited in a village between uh, or on the Madhya Pradesh-Maharashtra border in the, the central Indian state of Madhya Pradesh, uh, in um, the area that we have come to know in academic discourse as Vidharbha, where there have been an astonishing number of farmer suicides. And suicides due not only to crop failure, of course, as scholars have shown, but also due to crushing debt, the inability to pay off that debt, increasing yields of cotton from using genetically modified seeds and so on. And the artists were doing multi-year work, long-term work um, in a cotton field. There was a site-specific performance in which the artist uh, came into a cotton field in a procession and then was buried in a mm -hmm. coffin. The coffin was closed, although they, you know, she did have uh, uh, the equipment she needed to breathe. And uh, it was a kind of a ritualized burial, a ritualized funeral procession and burial. And there were a number of other coffins laid out in this cotton field. And we, as the audience, the project was largely uh, local in that people had come from nearby schools, nearby villages. Uh, there were farmers who had kind of stopped on their way from the fields to watch what was going on. There were other people who knew the artist from around that village who came to see this work. And it was really quite astonishing to see a work of art about a farming community with a farming community that engages the problem of not just climate change, which you could say is just one piece of the, the problem. Uh, if you think about climate change as being limited to conditions of drought, but you also um, got to see how they understand the problem as being about 
uh, death, about mm-hmm. mourning, about financial ruin, um, about uh, regeneration. But mm-hmm. watching the project with dogs, cattle, uh, <laughs> butterflies. I mean, you, there was a, an acute awareness for me, certainly as um, uh, as a city person, of all of these other actors uh, in the earth. The following day, the artists gathered us to have a discussion about what we saw. And that collective conversation was as much, I think, about addressing climate change and understandings of nature, ecology, environment, and what we mean by these terms. So how did some of the locals, you know, the farmers, maybe not the dogs and birds and cattle, how did they respond to this art? Did they... Uh, Daniel, you know, it's a a great question. And I've often been asked this question (laughs) when I present this work in academic context. I think there was a heightened affect. Uh, The burial was performative. She was disinterred from this (laughs) coffin where she spent three hours writing the words faith or vishwas in Hindi. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there's there are lots of ways in which the performance itself was remarkable, but I think you've actually hit on it when you said that, above all, it was the audience reaction. So there were musicians who were playing um, instruments at this performance, less orchestral, improvised music. Then there were other people who were crying, mm-hmm. and some of the children um, wanted to join the performance. The artists um, invited anyone who wanted to to join. And so, so that some of the children climbed into the coffins. So there was something kind of participatory and interactive about the the work and also playful, which you might not have imagined um, around a work about death. Yeah. And so that was in 2016. That's right. So have you heard from the community or the artists about what has gone on in the years since then? I have um, the project, which is to say they're not they haven't done another big land art festival project, but. This group of artists who call themselves uh, uh, the Grom Art Project. That's their the name of the collective. And it does very much intentionally play on the name of NGOs. But there are a lot of artworks uh, and art projects that are coming up in India, certainly, that play on um, the idea of an NGO. And in fact, are actually a critique, not just of government agency, but the agency of NGOs in uh, these kinds of areas. So uh, the Grom Art Project has been doing all kinds of things, projects around seeds, projects around toilets, projects around uh, documentation mm-hmm. of um, the agrarian. And I should say this is not, um, uh, they're very careful to say that the project is not about agrarian crisis, mm-hmm. as say farmer suicides have come to be termed in South Asia, which is not to say that there isn't a crisis attached to them, But a lot of the approach of this um, collective, like many other artists who are working on problems of land, ecology, and environment in India, is to investigate the problem, is to perform research very much like we do as scholars, Mm -hmm. to look into, well, what do people think? So, you know, they're not, in some ways, uh, when I first encountered these kinds of projects, I thought, oh, these are artists who are adopting the role of ethnographers until it you know, I realized after following them for some time, in many ways, what they're doing is less a project of social reform, which is to say, artists and outsiders uh, acting on a village community, Mm -hmm. which has historically been the norm in South Asia, but rather the artist, the metropolitan scholar, the journalist, the visitor, 
these are the objects of reform. They are really trying to rethink what is the relationship between city and village, between um, elite and subaltern subjects, between, um, say, peasant proprietors and landless peasants. And I think you point to all the different audiences for this art. So you have the same artistic event and expression can have one audience locally, but also the audience, you know, of the art world. And they might take very different conclusions from it, but the same expression can be understood in multiple ways by all these different audiences. Absolutely. And I went to see an exhibition this summer at Vadera Art Gallery. It was sponsored by the Foundation for Indian Contemporary Art. And it featured the Gram Art Project, um, along with many other artists who had come together during the COVID-19 pandemic and the large-scale farmers' protests in India to rethink what it means to be engaged in agricultural work. What does it mean uh, to think about questions not only of seeds and subsidies, but of language, of our relationship to soil and uh, implements used uh, to um, engage in farming and so on. And yes, Daniel, to answer your question, it was a very beautiful presentation, but it was very much a white cube art world presentation. But what I do think is quite significant about its presentation in Delhi was there was an emphasis on process. This was not an exhibition that was uh, trafficking in things or in finished goods and products. There was a very strong emphasis on learning. There was a reading room. The exhibition gallery was organized almost like it was a reading room. And you were invited to uh, join as an audience member, this community of artists and activists in rethinking what we understand by the agrarian. And so I thought it was a very um, compelling exhibition um, in part because the farmers' protests in India, as you know, were successful at least in their limited short-term goal about overturning the bills that had been introduced in parliament. Um, but rather than presenting those problems of the agrarian or of farmers' conditions and rights as resolved, it keeps those problems open. You mentioned several times collaboration as one of those key things as part of this you know, artistic response to climate change and to conflict, which sounds fascinating. And I wonder, is that a distinctly South Asian response? Or maybe how is that collaboration distinctively South Asian? So what I'm seeing in South Asia in many ways is part of that phenomenon. There, there is no way that what we're seeing in South Asia is apart from that phenomenon. Yeah. What I will say makes um, South Asian uh, or collaborative projects in South Asia so compelling is that there are immense divisions between and within nation states. To collaborate on projects across Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. India, and Pakistan, given that we have million-man armies, the threat of nuclear war, uh, visa regimes that are getting only more oppressive by the day, uh, a water crisis and climate crisis of uh, enormous scale. Uh, so there are lots of ways that, you know, South Asia is is uh, unified, of course, by the monsoons. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Um, and then there are all these ways in which it's an incredibly divided space. So to think about collaboration uh, across this geography is a really exciting um, proposition. And I think I don't need to say for to either of you, but perhaps you know your audience might not be aware that when I'm working on any of these projects, you're hearing at least five or six languages being spoken on site. Yeah. For these artists to come together to realize some of these projects, they speak uh, Uriya, they speak Bangla, they speak Marathi, they speak Hindi. Hindi is often the lingua franca, mm -hmm. uh, not always or exclusively, but in India, Hindi is often the lingua franca because English is not um, widely spoken or well known. Even if the artists possess it, their communities may not. Mm -hmm. The multilingual nature of these sites, where just you know, it's not just me as the scholar. Um, for whom some of these languages are um, out of reach, but even for the communities themselves. Um, and that is another really interesting feature of how do you collaborate with uneven knowledges, um, uneven access, and make that unevenness um, a central part of your work. It's not a deficiency. Yeah. It's actually what makes the work really interesting and uh, worthwhile. No, oh, that's fascinating. I have to say just on the... Side note, as a scholar does work in Tamil Nadu, you know, voice my objection to Hindi as a lingua franca. Is... <laughs> no, I, I don't disagree with that problem. But for example, when I work in Sri Lanka, English becomes yeah. a lingua franca because the artists that I work with speak Tamil and they speak Sinhalese. And uh, even if they could speak across, uh, I think the choice is made to speak in English. And yeah. uh, even even the many of the students I've worked with at the University of Jaffna, um, that is their preference. Not that I possess Tamil, although I'm I'm planning to learn it um, for my next uh, book project. Good um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but yes, I, I totally um, agree that this is context specific. Yeah, there's something in Sri Lanka about the language that somehow like anything public becomes English. That sometimes speaking in either Tamil or Singla. It seems like too personal, I guess, in some ways. In some ways, it's provide like English provides a little distance, almost like an academic framing of it. Which, yeah, absolutely. Sean uh, um edited an anthology that you probably know, Many yeah. Roads to Paradise, and you know makes an argument for English in a similar way, uh, not the kind of hegemonic Salman Rushdie argument that English is the language of South Asia, not that one, but a much more ethical, or I think carefully reasoned argument for why English has emerged in post-war Sri Lanka as a kind of lingua franca that uh, poets and artists can use. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with you and him. Yeah, so you also um, focused on feminist theory in your research, and how do you think about feminist theory intersecting with your research on art and conflict and climate change in South Asia? What a great question. I'm just delighted that you um, offered me this um, opportunity to address that because I do think that feminist theory and practice has been crucial to realizing the projects that I write about. There is a critique of authorship, of authority, and of agency that has, has historically been masculinist, which is not to say exclusively um, the uh, work of men, but certainly the thinking about who is an author, who carries authority, uh, who is able to exert agency 
in a certain situation. These notions have been uh, often very heroic. The artist is figured as a kind of savior or pioneer. And many of the projects that I write about have been initiated, not, if not all, have been initiated by women and by women who are committed to a different notion of agency, authority, and authorship that is more distributed, that is more democratic, that is more equitable, and that acknowledges difference. When I say more equitable, I don't mean equal. Mm -hmm. I think one of the feminist ideas that's at work here is to say, look, there is difference between village and city. There is difference between non-Adivasi and Adivasi culture. There is difference between elite and metropolitan subjects. And how do we find uh, a way to work together, to think about these problems as problems, to acknowledge them as problems, um, rather than, for example, for the metropolitan uh, artist to tell uh, a community how it must uh, reform itself, or for a metropolitan artist to extract materials and techniques from a community, say an indigenous community mm -hmm. that has knowledge of carving or has knowledge of um, other kinds of art making that the metropolitan artist wishes to access. So I think these are very much um, feminist critiques that have taken uh, root and shape in the art world and that my project addresses and actually brings to light as a key feature of contemporary art. There is a feminist consciousness and a feminist economy at work in everything from the production and consumption of these works of art to their distribution and display. So what would be an example of that feminist lens in the production and consumption? Absolutely. A pair of Sri Lankan projects I write mm -hmm. about um, are artist books. Uh, and the two artist books are called The One Year Drawing Project, published in 2008. And the other is The Incomplete Tombu, published in 2011. And both uh, artist books are created by men. So mm -hmm. the authors, if you will, the artists behind the books um, are male artists and authors. But the curator who commissioned uh, these books, Charmini Pereira, is a woman. The book was understood to be the work of art. These mm -hmm. projects were uh, based on sets of drawings. Uh, the first project on sets of drawings that the artists circulated among themselves through this postal system. And the other drawings produced in collaboration with by Tisha Nathanen with non-artist communities. And both of these projects were circulated in the art world. They were shown in galleries and museums. But I have seen them in people's living rooms. I have seen them in libraries. I have seen them being used by students um, for a conversation. I've seen them being used by uh, artists and residents in Jaffna mm -hmm. uh, to think about their experience of war. And the book circulated both as limited editions that were sold to collectors to raise money for the project, but also as kind of relatively expensive offset printed books that you could buy. At least I bought my copies on Amazon.com <laughs> when they were still available that way. And I've taught with them. I've read them. Um, that is a good example to me of how art 
is made accessible during and after war. Mm-hmm. Art begins to reach publics uh, that would not normally have had access um, to art, or art reaches publics in places where there aren't institutions. So at the time when Pereira uh, initiated these projects, one of the things that she said that was important about the book form was that Sri Lanka doesn't currently have a gallery or museum. Mm-hmm. So the book becomes both an institution and a critique of institutions. But there are many cities in South Asia, Jaffna among them, that doesn't have a biennial. So it doesn't have the large-scale exhibition like Kochi, like Lahore, and so on. So there are also fewer ways for artists in these places to engage discourses um, and practices elsewhere. And the book, you know, it doesn't change everything. (laughs) But it is a way of saying the economics of this system needs to be rethought. You know, who profits from it um, and um, what are the ethics of this system? I think the limited editions are very beautiful, but I think they're much more powerful if you're reading them, um, whether it's by yourself or with friends. Um, And I think if you're, you know, if you have them scattered, as I've seen on a coffee table in a living room, alongside photo albums that you've uh, kept, you know, your family's photo albums, newspapers, memorabilia. Uh, Sometimes, uh, although not often, I can imagine that people have saved things um, from the Mm -hmm. war. You know, all of these kinds of objects, I think, can become a kind of um, art assemblage in your home. That access and attitude, I will say, to the work of art is a feminist critique of uh, the system, of the market system through which it typically circulates. So it seems that a lot of the art you are most fascinated art does not follow the traditional, typical expectations of how art is displayed or produced or even consumed. And am I right in saying, like, you find that to be an implicitly feminist approach to art? I do think so. Absolutely. I think if you think about feminism as being a critique of power, then absolutely. I think we need to think about art as being about sight, about structure, about system, not just a thing that can be bought and sold. There's nothing outsider art about what we're um, seeing here. These are artists who have trained at the most elite art schools in South Asia, who are rethinking their practice and a history of practice. With everything that you've been discussing so far, what is the goals and planned outcomes for the next monsoon project? Oh, I would I want to hear from our collaborators. I've been learning so much um, from the reading groups convened so far, and it's really expanded my knowledge, but also methodological approaches or frameworks for thinking about climate, mm-hmm. nature, ecology, environment, terms that you know often can be quite stabilized in discourse. Uh, So that's, I will say, um, something I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to meeting in person. (laughs) We've been working together um, for some time now, and especially with this very uh, large, international, diverse group of people. And I'm looking forward to our gathering um, at Cornell in the fall. I'm looking forward to uh, the work we'll do there, and then to realize um, a book, which I hope will feature uh, contributions that are um, creative, uh, mm-hmm. that are compelling 
to artists, to scholars, to uh, journalists, to uh, a broad public, such as the mm -hmm. one that the NEH envisions for uh, projects that they support. Of course, of course. The final question is, what is one sign of hope about climate change in South Asia? Now, that's a good question. Uh, I'm trying to think <laughs> of a response that wouldn't seem too naive, not because I'm pessimistic, but rather the opposite, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I am constantly writing about creative or imaginative responses to climate change, ways in which people are coming together in incredibly hopeful gestures. The projects I write about are not trying to solve the problem, let me be clear, or offer a fix or a cure, uh, but they are very move moving and often powerful expressions of community, of critique, of care. Uh, and I think that's um, a sign of hope. That's it for today's episode on the next monsoon. Next time, we'll be talking to Rupali Gupte on the role of the environment in shaping the field of architecture and urban design. We would like to give special thanks to Sam Lubowitz and Angelica Kramer at Cornell's Language Resource Center for their assistance with recording this podcast. Shivin Senvaratna not only co-hosts this podcast, but is also our editor. Funding for the podcast and the entire Next Monsoon project comes from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Please follow the South Asia program on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at SAP Cornell. You've been listening to music by SAP Administrator Gloria Lemus Chavez and her partner Brandon Kane. Make sure to check out more of their work in the show notes. The ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the National Endowment for the Humanities, Cornell's Office of the Vice Provost for International Affairs, or any other official entity of Cornell University. I'm Daniel Bass. And I'm Shavin Sinavratna. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode for new conversations and stories on the next monsoon.